Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Greg. And we have another great show for you guys today. But first, Greg, do you want to tell me how you are? What's on your mind? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And what is on my mind? Uh, I've got a media recommendation for the people out there today. Nice. Uh, You and I recently finished the show Detroiters, which I think was a Comedy Central show back in the day. Yeah, Comedy Central. We, so I I think it was a show that just kind of died on the vine because Comedy Central used to have a very stacked lineup, and I think that it was just competing against a lot of other shows that were, at the time, cultural institutions. And so I I think it just kind of never got a fair shake, Yeah. but it is incredible. So we we checked it out after, um, after watching I Think You Should Leave because we really enjoyed the comedic stylings of Tim Robinson. (laughs) And so we were interested to see like, hey, what else has he done? Yeah. Uh, We saw he had a show called Detroiters with his frequent collaborator, Sam Richardson, um, which if you've watched Veep, uh, uh, Richard Splett. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was Richard Splett from Veep, if you watch that. Um, But yeah, so we we just decided, hey, we haven't heard much about this, but let's check it out because we like these guys. And I swear to God, it's one of the funniest fucking shows I've ever seen. It's um, really good. So if you like absurdist comedy, or if you just watched I Think You Should Leave on Netflix and thought, hey, what else has this Tim Robinson guy done? Uh, would strongly recommend Detroiters. The The premise of the show is that uh, Tim, Tim and Sam, well, their characters at least, are um, their admin from Detroit and they're very bad at their jobs and that's about all you need to know uh (laughs) and from there plenty of zany hijinks uh ensue the comedy style is very similar to i think you should leave but i think it's not quite as unhinged i think yeah it's not quite as unhinged and there's also just more to sink your teeth into because you do actually have a chance to get to know the characters and there's a bit of an ensemble cast um but yeah so if if you like comedy especially like kind of absurdist comedy would strongly, strongly recommend Detroiters. Yeah. And it came out before they started making I Think You Should Leave. So it's also kind of fun to see some of the roots of what would then become themes throughout I Think You Should Leave in Detroiters. Like some of my favorite I Think You Should Leave sketches are the ones that are like fake advertisements. Mm -hmm. And there are so many of those in Detroiters because that's their job. So it's just like a perfect vehicle for just the silliest shit. Oh, for sure. I, I think I think Coffin Flop is still <laughs> one of the best I think you should leave sketches. Yeah, yeah. So what's uh what what's on your mind, Lens? Yeah, I have two things I want to share today that I'm excited about. Number one is just kind of a small one, but it's a huge impact in my life. I got new glasses. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. They look they look great. Thank you. It's it's stupid, but I have been wearing glasses or contacts for over half my life at this point and realize that I have never had a pair of glasses that actually fit me well. I've always hated them. I've always been really annoyed by glasses and just wear contacts. Um, But like had an epiphany about a month ago that maybe that was because I was wearing bad glasses instead of just glasses in general being bad. So I found like this little local glasses shop here in Raleigh that's not like attached to an eye doctor or anything usually I just got my glasses at the eye doctor but it's like 
a shop just for purchasing glasses and went in there and the guy like immediately pulled like several glasses that were like oh this is gonna be like perfect size for your face like fit you perfectly and he was spot on and yeah I have my new glasses now and they don't slide down my nose which is this that's been my biggest annoyance with glasses thus far and it's just really it's a delightful thing to have glasses that actually fit so I just wanted to share that because like if any of you have had that have not had that epiphany yet of like oh, maybe I've just been wearing bad glasses and like need to stop trying to purchase them for my eye doctor who just doesn't care but to sell me the most expensive pair no, they, available. They, they, they get you the right lenses, but then the frames, like, right. yeah, who cares? Exactly. This is, this is just profit. Exactly. Yeah, so I think going to like a local shop and finding somebody who like specializes in finding a pair of glasses that fit like your face and what you want to wear glasses for really makes a big difference yeah and and i also think it just illustrates a good point which is that you know people have a lot of negative things to say about phrenology but totally joking uh this this is an anti-phrenology podcast but i I like to imagine that glasses fitters are people who have that skill set but use it for good but i (laughs) i didn't go to the shop with you but i i like to imagine that he just talks like a like a racist like 19th century like british phrenology guy where he'd be like from the shape of your orbital bone i can see that you need this particular brow ridge that's like, like that. a louisiana guy yeah yeah i guess, I guess <laughs> that's so. like uh daniel craig's character in knives out that no, was the accent you just you're did. right i pulled the complete wrong accent but i i think that that's like a it's a similar type of guy a, a sim yeah a similar type of like racist phrenology yeah dude. Luckily, that was not the guy who I spoke to at the glasses shop. Okay. He was from Southern California, so about as far away from that as you can get. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what was what was the second thing? Oh, yeah. So, the second thing um, is I have really been loving using the new micronutrient features in Macrofactor. And I know that this just, like, sounds like an ad, but it really is, like, another thing that is just bringing me a lot of delight at this time. So I have never tracked my micronutrient intake before, um, but since you know we had these new features coming out in Macrofactor, I try to use all of the features that we have so that I can understand the product as well as possible and was just kind of expecting to use the micronutrient stuff for a couple weeks, get a hang of it, and then not really want to use it anymore because I just historically haven't been interested in tracking that Mm -hmm. but i've actually been really enjoying it and it has definitely encouraged me to add a wider variety of like fruits and vegetables and like whole wheat items to my diet so like it's making me eat better but it's just because like i like to look at the graphs in the app and see how like eating different things affects like how much fiber i'm getting or Mm -hmm. saturated fat like things like this that are important but that i've just never really looked at before um so yeah like i said it sounds like an ad but it's just like i'm really enjoying it right now and if you like to try track your micronutrients or just interested or like maybe you went to the doctor recently and you need to like focus on eating less saturated fat which is something that recently happened to me then like this is helpful so if you want to learn more about the new micronutrient features in macro factor you can go to macrofactorapp.com 
Um, we also have a bunch of new informative articles about micronutrients that Greg wrote recently. So that's been really helpful too for me to like just learn more about vitamins and minerals and like what micronutrients actually make sense to track because there are like 40 or 50 of them or something. So it can very quickly get overwhelming. Yeah, I think I think 54 yeah. if memory serves. But the content that you wrote, Greg, really helped to kind of like narrow the focus and like really understand what's important and what is just kind of like well i don't really need to pay super close attention to that in my own diet well thank you i i certainly appreciate that um have you have you noticed any changes since you've started tracking your micronutrients and trying to eat more fruits and vegetables and stuff like are, are you feeling better or different in any way i think so like i i haven't been sleeping as much recently that has nothing to do with like my sleep being affected, but I just have been setting my alarm earlier every day, but my energy levels have been about the same, I think. Nice. And I think that that might have something to do with just, um, eating a slightly better diet. And like, I think digestion has been better. And I also have had a lot of issues with like eating too much fiber in the past and like that causing stomach problems or just like getting stomach aches. But I think like I ate enough fiber or I ate like a moderate amount of fiber for enough days in a row that I've kind of like acclimated my body a little bit more. Nice. So now I do actually feel like I can eat a wider variety of foods without having to worry about the tummy troubles that I was having before. Sweet. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. Yeah. All right. Uh, plugs? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go through a couple quick recommendations before we get into the meat of this episode so if you're enjoying the show please like rate subscribe and tell your friends it really helps us out um word of mouth is a huge way that podcasts spread and all of those things just kind of contribute to more people learning about the podcast if you're interested in hiring a virtual coach to help you with your training and or nutrition, Stronger by Science has a team of excellent coaches that can help you. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Uh, if you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source and support the podcast at the same time, buy from bulksupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD to get a 5% discount. And um, yeah, I already talked about Macro Factor a little bit, but other than supporting our team of coaches, the main product that Greg and I focus on these days is Macro Factor. Uh, it's a premium macro tracking and diet coaching app. We both use it and love it, obviously, from what I've already said, but 80,000 other people use it and love it too. Uh, you can join them and try it for free for 14 days by using the code SBS during sign up uh, on the App Store or Google Play. And if you want to learn about all the other features in the app, including all the new micronutrient stuff, you can check out our website at macrofactorapp.com. And Greg, I'm going to kick it over to you for the rest of these plugs. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're looking for a, uh, a way to stay up to date with the research coming out that is most relevant to strength and physique athletes and coaches, uh, check out the Mass Research Review. That is, I think, just massresearchreview.com. Yeah. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, chat about the podcast, uh, stay in touch about what's going on, etc., uh, you can join our Facebook group and subreddit. That's uh, 
Facebook, I think it's Stronger by Science community on Facebook yep. and reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science. Uh, if you would like free study breakdowns sent to your inbox every other week on podcast off weeks, uh, you can sign up to our newsletter where we send our research spotlight posts. Um, also, just a general note, if you're listening to this and you also follow us on Instagram, the informative content we post on Instagram is like an abridged version of the research spotlight posts. Yep. So if there if there are any of those that you're like, oh, this is interesting, I'd like to know more, where can I find more? Uh, typically the website, um, just for a, a longer version of that. And we send those those full versions of those research breakdowns out in the newsletter. Uh, and finally, if you have questions for the podcast that you'd like us to address, record a brief audio file, uh, 60 seconds or less and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com and if we like it we will address it on the show and by the way that's another good reason to join the facebook group and subreddit because when we have a particular topic for an episode that we're going to uh, cover i'll post about it in the facebook group and subreddit to solicit questions particularly for that subject uh did that this time around and so, yeah, if, if you'd like to increase the probability that you ask a question <laughs> that we answer on the podcast, um, the, the Facebook group and subreddit are a good way to know what topics we're going to be covering on the podcast and therefore what sorts of questions we're, we're generally looking for. Yeah, and you mentioned that we asked for questions this week about the topic. The topic is pre-sleep nutrition. So I wanted to talk about this after I I saw an article recently from the Washington Post about a new cereal that post-consumer brands has started selling. The article is a couple months old at this point, but I haven't heard much about this subject. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about here. So the cereal is called Sweet Dreams, and it's marketed as a pre-bed snack with, quote, curated ingredients for healthy nighttime habits and, quote, part of a healthy sleep routine. So basically, they're selling this cereal telling you that it's going to help you sleep better. Um, so some of the claims that they make about it on the website page is that it's the first ready-to-eat cereal specially designed to support a good sleep routine and a fresh start to the next day. And it's made with delicious and wholesome ingredients, a nighttime herbal blend of lavender and chamomile, and curated vitamins and minerals like zinc, folic acid, and B vitamins to support natural melatonin production. There are two flavors, blueberry midnight containing blueberry lavender and chamomile, which honestly sounds gross to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. Hmm. So I I mean here here's my thing. Yeah. Um like we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more, but there there is some evidence suggesting that lavender might help with sleep or at least relaxation but also it's a kind of strong flavor yeah and i do think that lavender or just like floral stuff in general can pair well with berry flavors but also i'm skeptical that you'd be able to get enough lavender for it to actually have the desired effect without Definitely. without it just tasting like an air freshener yeah and like the artificial lavender taste is way different than like if you've had lavender from like a lavender extract um 
and the artificial lavender it really just tastes like soap yeah yeah that that is that is unfortunately the case with a lot of a lot of extracts because because like one um not all of the volatile compounds in whatever you're dealing with will be soluble in the same uh, uh, like solution. So, you know, some things are will dissolve well in alcohol, some will dissolve well in oil, some mm-hmm. will dissolve well in water, whatever. Like, it's hard to get the full round flavor of something with a single extract. Um, and also a lot of those volatile compounds are volatile like they'll they'll kind of just percolate away which is which is why like things with strong scents like a perfume or whatever if you leave it open it the smell gets less and less intense over time because it's volatile like that's what it means and that that's how you can smell it in the first place like these compounds are volatile they they go out of solution and up into the air so they can make it to your nose and you can smell them um but yeah so i I think that there would be a lot of challenges to get kind of the full round flavor of lavender in a shelf stable product Mm -hmm. because a lot of those compounds and aromatics probably wouldn't necessarily want to stick around. So you probably have to do some sort of like witchcraft to to take like a small subset of those scent compounds or flavor compounds or whatever that give you like some of the feeling of lavender uh, that you can make stable enough to to put in cereal in a box and it still be there yeah. when someone eats it. But yeah, it, it's it's the same way with vanilla for what it's worth. Like if you've, I I realize that I've already gone off on a tangent. <laughs> I apologize, okay. but uh, recommendation for for uh, uh, cooking heads out there. Cooking heads. Cooking heads. Yeah. Is that what you call yourselves in that community? I don't know. Home home cooks. I guess. Okay gourmands gourmands fuck it whatever but um but yeah so if you've never had fresh vanilla beans before one you probably don't want to get into a huge habit of using them because they're they're pretty expensive um but if you've never had fresh vanilla before i would recommend getting some just fresh vanilla beans at some point because the there there is so much more going on in vanilla beans than vanilla extract um because mo- mostly there, you're just isolating the vanillin, which is the main compound that gives vanilla its characteristic flavor. But there, there's so much more going on in the individual bean. Um, yeah. So it's very nice. Like it's it's an experience worth having. I think. Okay, I'm sorry. That's can, okay. You know, actually, that's a decent segue because the other flavor of this cereal contains vanilla. Oh, nice. It's honeymoon glow containing honey vanilla, lavender, and chamomile. So those are the two flavors of this new cereal that Post Consumer Brands is trying to sell as like a sleep cereal. Um, And I I love this quote from the press release. Greg, will you you read this quote? Yes. More than ever, consumers are looking to embrace acts of self-care particularly as it relates to bedtime routines, and we believe a relaxing bedtime routine is key to a good night's sleep. As a brand that's been helping early risers crush their morning routines for over 100 years, we're thrilled to now help fans also establish healthy nighttime habits by providing a nutrient-dense before-bed snack made to support a sleep routine that they could only dream of until now. (laughs) 
That's extra as hell. Damn, they are so high on their own they, supply. They really nice. are. So obviously we're not going to talk about this serial the entire episode, but I just thought this was an interesting entry point to talking about how marketing creates new food routines and claims regarding supplements and nutrients that allegedly help us get better sleep. And then we're going to turn to Greg to tell us what the science actually says about nutrition and sleep. So there are a couple interesting and amusing marketing tactics being used for this cereal that I just wanted to note. Um, first is the way that the sales copy informs the consumer about nighttime rituals. And it like weaves in consumption of their product as a healthy way to end the day. So on the back of the box of cereal, there's a five-step bedtime routine that starts with eating the cereal. So the first step is relax with a bowl of sweet dream cereal. Number two, keep a set bedtime for regularity. Number three, switch off devices an hour before sleep. Number four, save 30 minutes for winding down. And number five, try meditation or breathing techniques. Damn, it's crazy. It's almost like you could shorten that to a four-step bedtime routine. It does seem like that. (laughs) But you got to start the routine with eating the cereal, Greg. Sure, yeah. So it's really smart that they did this. The tips, other than eating a bowl of cereal, obviously, are likely to help people get better sleep. Like those are very normal things to recommend to somebody who is trying to sleep better. Mm -hmm. So the chance of somebody attributing their better sleep to the product is much higher. Yeah. And when I told you about this earlier, you brought up another example of like a company that did this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... For people around our age to maybe slightly younger, uh, there was a a program called P90X that was advertised heavily online and infomercials all over the place for uh, probably five or six years or so. Um, And it it promised that it would help you get in better shape, get fucking shredded, etc. The claims that you expect from all kind of quick fix uh, fitness things. Yeah. Um, but the, the very smart thing about it is they made all of these claims about their workouts. Like they're, they're the ones who, uh, I wouldn't say completely popularized, but like finished, I would say the popularization of the idea of epoch, like the idea that if you do high intensity workouts, you'll keep burning way more calories when the workout is over. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's like, Hey, these are, these are short workouts, but you really get after it. And then guess what? You you keep burning hundreds and hundreds of more calories for the next day, two, three, wow, whatever. That'd be convenient. Um, it, it would be. And, and the thing is, like, that is a real effect, but it, mm-hmm. the, the magnitude of it is right. relatively trivial. Of course. Um, but yeah, like that that's what they attributed the purported results to. But if you bought P90X, it also came with a diet that it strongly recommended you follow, which was basically a crash diet. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, a lot of people used P90X and lost a bunch of weight and said, ah, oh, man, this these high-intensity workouts in the Epoch, it's fucking magic. And it's like, dude, you're, you're like, you started at 2.30 and you're eating 1,000 calories a day. Like, you really... You really think the workouts are, are what did this for you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it sounds similar with this cereal where 
says, hey, do all of the good things we know uh, related to sleep hygiene and also eat our cereal. And then if you start sleeping better, guess what? Our cereal did it's it. It's an integral part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, something else is if you can get people to establish a new pleasant routine based entirely around consuming your product, you're more likely to gain a repeat customer. So if somebody comes to associate bedtime with eating a bowl of cereal, that's going to be a huge win for the brand. And obviously like that's a pleasant thing to do. Like most people like eating cereal. So it's like, if you can, if your brain starts associating like, oh, it's time to wind down and I get to have my nightly bowl of cereal that I enjoy, then, you know, you're going to keep buying that cereal. Mm -hmm. And we see this with other items. I, I think it's kind of like associating watching a movie in the movie theater with getting popcorn and a soda. Like you sit down um, or you walk in and that association is already there. It's like part of the routine. So you're going to do it every time and you're going to be a repeat customer or like associating attending a sports game with like eating a hot dog and getting a beer. I mean, I, I would even toss like a Thanksgiving turkey in there. Yeah. I don't think anyone loves turkey. I don't think it's anyone's like favorite food. You always say you love turkey every Thanksgiving and that you're going to make turkey more often and then you never do. Well, okay. Here's the thing. Here's the problem with turkey. Okay. Um, so one, I cook a mean turkey. Most people don't. Like most most birds you get are going to be very dry. Yeah. Uh, and we, we've talked about how to cook a good turkey on the podcast before. I don't remember what episode. Guess what? Just listen to the entire back catalog. Just go You'll, back in the November ones. Like, it's going to be around that time. Yeah, I, I think American it was... American Thanksgiving. I think it was no, a November episode of our very first year. Um, but, yeah, I may as well just listen to all of the old episodes of course. just in case. Yeah, just in case. Um, but, yeah, so... I, I, I cook a pretty good bird. You do. You you cook a very good turkey. Most Thanksgiving turkeys suck. Yes. Um, and turkeys, much like chickens, are way too, like, breast heavy in terms of the total amount of meat. Yeah. And turkey breast is not great meat. Mm -hmm. But turkey thigh is delicious. Mm -hmm. So if I could find a hookup around here to just buy bone-in, skin-on turkey thighs... I would I would be in business like that that is <laughs> that is something I would be extremely interested in but like when you cook a Thanksgiving turkey 80% of the meat you get off of it is just going to be breast meat um, which is not great but people associate it so strongly with the holiday yeah that if that association were ever broken like I think turkey farmers would just be fucked that's true you know yeah but yeah, because they're so, like they they know that so many people are going to buy turkeys every yeah. year. So if that ever stopped, it would be a disaster. I also think that association should kind of be broken, though. Like, yeah, here, here's the thing. If you're listening and you're the person who hosts Thanksgiving for your family, um, just, you know, figure out who's going to be there for this coming Thanksgiving and maybe send out a poll. And say <laughs> send out a poll. And yeah, and say, hey, like if we're going to have a big hunk of meat as the centerpiece for this feast, what do people like? Yeah. And I you know, some people traditionalists, some might say turkey, 
But I think I think there's going to be a lot of people saying, ah, what if we did ribs? Or yeah. like, what if we did a big beef roast? Or, yeah, or a big rib roast. Yeah. That or, would be amazing. Or if you want to stay in the... Uh, you want to stay in the fowl family (laughs) of course uh you could take a page out of the book of our friends across the pond and go with goose oh yeah goose is also a christmas goose a couple years ago Goose is delicious yeah yeah um anyway yeah let's let's get back to to yeah people yes people associate turkey with thanksgiving absolutely that's true that is the only point i was trying to make (laughs) yes uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the last um the last little thing i think is smart about their five-step bedtime routine that starts with eating the bowl of cereal is that they're creating a new meal time entirely specifically to slot their product into so they're not there's not as much competition at this time so instead of like telling people to eat cereal for breakfast they're saying like oh actually we're creating this new time of day that you're going to eat and guess what our product is the perfect thing to slot in there and that's similar to like taco bell doing their fourth meal thing it's exactly the same it's just cereal as a fourth meal yeah yeah i i agree although i don't really even know if that was the point of taco bell's marketing i think it was more just like hey look this is food you eat when you're shit-faced. And, <laughs> they know, yeah. And we just want to make sure you're aware when you're driving home from the bar, one, don't tell us how much you drank while you're sitting in the Taco Bell drive through line. That's none of our business. But two, that's where you should come because guess what? We are still open. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I enjoy Taco Bell fourth meal, though. I think that's that's a good marketing campaign. I agree. Eat um, great even late. Yeah. Uh, so the second thing that I'll say about just the marketing in general, the obviousness of why they are doing this right now, cereal sales have been down. Um, they went up during the pandemic um, along with other packaged foods made to eat at home. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. But since then, inflation and folks returning to society has resulted in a decline in the cold cereal sales. And it's been part of a larger trend of more people skipping breakfast entirely or eating foods on the go. So like going through the drive through and getting breakfast at like McDonald's or just opting for other types of breakfast foods that they perceive as healthier than cereal. So foods that are higher in protein or lower in sugar. Yeah, I mean, that that's a that's a pretty wide net to cast. Like, food's healthier than <laughs> most breakfast cereals. Well, this is just an aside, and we're not going to get into it at all. But I I read, like, a little bit about the history of cereal whenever I was doing uh, the research for this episode. And mm-hmm. whenever people first started se- selling cereal, it was branded as, like, the perfect health food. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> but it's obviously not. It also had a lot less sugar that's true that's true that's before they started making candy cereal yeah and i also think that they may have had a slightly different operational definition of health uh to encompass the idea of you'll be you'll be healthy because you'll be retaining more of your vital essences because you're going to eat this product and never bust again like that was yeah the the john harvey kellogg (laughs) stuff yeah. yeah 
Somebody, you guys need to go back and listen to our vibration plate episode if you want more John Harvey Kellogg content. Because out of context, that just sounded insane, Greg. Uh, Breakfast cereal was made by the, uh, were they Quakers or Seventh-day Adventists? Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, yeah, they, they were Adventists. Anyway, they thought that all like what it's not worth getting into, but they they thought that getting horny was bad, and if you ate cereal or also like graham crackers, which also didn't used to be sweetened, um, they they made those as foods that you could eat to live a a pure life free from sin and temptation, and that would make you healthier because you would be retaining your vital essences. Um, anyway, not not probably the best ideas that are completely in line with modern science. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they like, I don't doubt that old cereals did actually used to be a lot healthier because es- essentially it's just a whole grain product. Yeah. That's not sweetened and is easily consumable. Like there- there's nothing wrong with that except for the taste. And so then they just <laughs> threw a bunch of sugar on it. You know? They're like, what if we add marshmallows? Right. <laughs> and now they have oops, all marshmallows. That's, or uh, may, maybe maybe they got rid of that. But yeah, that was, I think that was the point when breakfast cereal just fully jumped the shark. Yeah, yeah. And they had the Lucky Charms, oops, all marshmallows. <laughs> I mean, just, come like even. You ever want marshmallows with milk for breakfast? Yeah, like the, cookie crisp is one thing. It's yeah. just like we're going to make well, a miniature. Well, they have like a Pop-Tart cereal too now. Yeah, but what? When it gets to the point that you're like, yes, I'm just going to pour a bowl of marshmallows <laughs> and pour milk over it. Like that's, you've, you've gone too it's far. It's truly cursed. Yeah. It's, it's time for the pendulum to swing back at that point. Right. So for that reason and the others that I listed already, cereal sales have been down, <laughs> but marketing for sleep aids is booming. So sales of foods, beverages, supplements, and other products that help people sleep totaled $74.3 billion in 2021, according to Precedence Research. And that's expected to increase to nearly $125 billion by 2030. Um, And that's from a article in Business Insider. So post-consumer... Cereal wants to sell more cereal, but they know that fewer people are eating cereal at breakfast. But they see that market trends are towards sleep aid products. So we get Sweet Dream cereal. That's smart. I mean, I, I can't knock the hustle. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, so I think it's just, it's such a perfect case study of like marketing kind of driving a product rather than there actually being any intention of creating a product specifically for consumers to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Maybe they really care about improving your sleep, but maybe they care more about their bottom line and taking advantage of what they see as a market opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, both could be true yeah. but i think one might be more true than yeah. the other yeah so i think it's just it's important to say just be cognizant that this is a hot market right now and there are going to be a lot of people and businesses trying to sell you shit that you don't need and that's not going to work yeah and i think that's a good segue to announce that we're launching our <laughs> own 
<laughs> line of sleep supplements. They're called Stronger by Science Sweet Dreams. Stronger by uh, Science Sweet Dreams. Or it's sleep, sleep. You just took the name of this cereal. It has to be something else. They're called Sleepy by Science. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no, th- that's a joke. Sleepier by Science. That is, there's an idea. But no, we're not doing that. I do want to talk about some other products in the pre-bed market, though, because I do think it's just kind of fun and silly. So I found this whole company dedicated to nighttime snacks called Night Food. Um, Their website says that, quote, sleep experts formulated night food for guilt-free nighttime snacking with a sleep-friendly nutritional profile. They sell cookies and ice cream. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, they can say things like, our ice cream contains more tryptophan, calcium, magnesium, and zinc than traditional ice cream because they're adding those they're adding those things in. Mm-hmm. And it's like nobody's nobody's looking at their ice cream and being like, well, how much tryptophan is in here? Yeah. Um, so for the ice cream, the macros look pretty similar to Halo Top, which markets itself as a more macro friendly ice cream. And that's a pretty it's a pretty controversial product. So we won't get into that. Um, but the night food ice cream doesn't have erythritol. Is that how you say that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The sugar alcohol. And I think that's the thing that, that really, um, fucks a lot of people up about Halo Top is the sugar alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Sugar alcohol is one of those, or various sugar alcohols, uh, are, are things where they, they, they taste nicer than I think most other low or non-nutri like low calorie or non-nutritive sweeteners in small doses um but but yeah if you eat a lot of them it might become a problem i i forget which there there is kind of like a a ranking of which ones cause the most tummy troubles yeah i think eh, if memory serves i think sorbitol is the one that a lot of people have issues with erythritol is kind of in the middle I think xylitol people can often eat quite a bit of and be fine. It could be a completely different order, so don't don't take that too seriously. But yeah, like it, it, in if if people listening, and I know I've recommended this on the podcast before, but I will <laughs> I every time sugar alcohols come up. <laughs> just Google sugar-free gummy bears Amazon review. <laughs> yeah. There is a there there is a piece of found art on the internet <laughs> about this topic that that warns against the dangers of excess sugar alcohol consumption yeah. and you owe it to yourself to check it out yeah yeah if you're not sure how your body reacts to sugar alcohol maybe make sure you're at home when you eat it yeah 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 so so anyways this this night food ice cream doesn't have the sugar alcohol um and just to to compare to other ice creams it seems like they just added tryptophan, calcium, some magnesium, some zinc, and some vitamin B6. And it's like $8 per pint, which is pretty steep. steep. Yeah. For the cookies, so they sell the ice cream and cookies. The macros aren't very different from like Chips Ahoy or Oreos. <laughs> like it's just a straight up cookie. Mm-hmm. Um, the main difference is that They have more protein, like it's four grams of protein per serving. Chips Ahoy and Oreos have one gram, but it's like you're not eating cookies for for four grams of protein anyways. Yeah. And the sugar difference is six grams versus 10 grams. So I don't know. That doesn't seem like a huge difference to me. And the calorie difference is 120 
versus 140. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at that, like, you're just eating chips ahoy at that point. Yeah. Um, and then it just seems like there's some added vitamin B6 and inositol. Is that how you say that? I think it's inositol. Okay. Whatever that is. Uh, and the cookies are $14.99 for a three bag pack. Each bag seems like it contains about 12 little cookies. So that seems like... That's also steep. Yeah, maybe a little better than the ice cream, but pretty steep. And those cookies, I don't know. I feel like there's pre-made no way cookies good. taste like shit. Yeah, it's, there's no way. Except for, and if, if, you, if you don't love yourself at all, uh, grandma's cookies, <laughs> grandma's brand cookies. Um, man, they... I, I, I am against the concept of guilty pleasure in the yeah. abstract. Like, I don't think people should feel guilty about their pleasure as long as it's not hurting anyone. But I would consider Grandma's cookies a guilty pleasure <laughs> of mine um, because, my God, they are so good and they make me feel like complete dog shit after I eat them every time. <laughs> so that's the guilt. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I guess it's more like regret than it's, guilt. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a it's a regretful pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, anyway, but those are pre-made cookies that, for my money, are they're, delicious. They're good. Yeah. The rest of them, not good. Correct. Yeah. Um, so that's that night food company. And then I want to talk about one other company. Um, it's called the Functional Chocolate Company, and they have a product called Sleepy Chocolate. The company's whole shtick seems to be chocolate with added vitamins and minerals that claim to help with specific health issues so sleepy chocolate is just one of their offerings um they also have pain-free chocolate formulated for everyday aches and pains carefree chocolate formulated to help you stabilize stress and now we get into the funny ones sexy chocolate formulated to help launch your libido and a rhythm chocolate formulated to help you pause your PMS. I don't know what pausing your PMS means. I feel like I don't want to pause it. I just want to get just, on through it. it. Like, yeah, yeah, skip it. You're, yeah, you're, you're just saving it up and then there's a chocolate shortage and you can't get your rhythm. <laughs> you, you've been eating this for like three years straight and uh, you're, 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 you've just been, uh, you've been pausing your PMS yeah. for, you know, three quarters of an olympiad and then you can't get your hands on the rhythm chocolate anymore and then you're fucked god help everyone in your immediate vicinity um and they also have one that's supposed to help you manage menopause that's called hot chocolate i feel like that's a bad name i think there's another product called hot chocolate already is there i think (laughs) i believe so Yeah, I feel like they they did the little pun there, like hot flashes, but it is just like you just think of the beverage. Yeah. So the sleepy chocolate contains chamomile, valerian, lavender, lemon balm, magnesium, and melatonin. But there's nothing on their website anywhere that says how much of any of those are actually in a serving. Mm. And they cost $7.89 per chocolate bar. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's pretty steep. And ah man, I forget what it's called, but I believe there's a there's a compound in chocolate 
that behaves a lot like caffeine. Like it's, it's yeah. from the same family. I think it, I think it might be called thrombine or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, like chocolate itself has like mild stimulatory properties. Yeah, I had forgotten about that, but yeah. So, so like I, I don't know. Like I maybe don't... it'll be housing a chocolate bar right before bed. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that it's not enough to like really fuck up your sleep. But I also feel like for a sleep supplement, there is probably a better vehicle to be had than a chocolate bar. Yeah. It might just be like, I'm, I'm sure it's just because chocolate is a pretty good cover up of other flavors. And so they can kind of like squeeze a bunch of other shit in there without it tasting too disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. All right. So those are, those are the other couple, um, products that are kind of trying to cash in on this big sleep aid market right now. Um, So I want to move now into talking about the claims regarding the supplements and nutrients that allegedly help us get better sleep that that are in these products. Um, For the Sweet Dreams cereal specifically, they say that the lavender, chamomile, and vitamins and minerals in the cereal, which were zinc, folic acid, and B vitamins, support natural melatonin production. And for the vitamins and minerals, like, sure, I don't know, maybe. I think that's probably true that those things can support melatonin production, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, I looked at examine.com sleep supplement guide to learn more about sleep supplements just as kind of the background for this, but I know Greg, you have some specific stuff to talk about for each one, Mm -hmm. but I was actually a little surprised to learn that, um, examine says there aren't any supplements that we know of that have a considerable benefit, a high degree of evidence and are broadly applicable for supporting sleep. There are a few secondary and, um, promising supplements in their guide. Those are like the other categories that are, um, classified that way because they either lack robust evidence or are more likely to have modest effects on average. Mm -hmm. Lavender is one of the ones that um, is listed as a secondary supplement. And that's one of the items obviously mentioned in the Sweet Dreams cereal marketing. The other supplement in that category on the examine guide is melatonin. And all others on the page are in the lower tiers of promising or unproven. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that, that is true. Yeah. Do, do you, do you want me to talk about lavender now? I'll just say like what I, what I, um, gleaned from the examine page is that most lavender research has been done using inhaled oil. Yeah. So it's, it seems promising, but it's kind of weird to compare like ingesting lavender versus the aromatherapy of lavender. And studies on oral supplementation are much more recent. Most of them use a proprietary lavender extract called Selexin, which is dosed at 80 milligrams, which is probably a lot more lavender than you're getting from that cereal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Sweet Dream cereal doesn't share how much lavender is used. We probably cannot assume that it's enough to make an effective dose. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't make that assumption. Um, but yeah, so ju- just to talk a little bit more about lavender, um, like you mentioned, most of the research to this point has used lavender inhalation, mm-hmm. uh, testing its effects on various things, um, which has led to 
a misconception that I've encountered a couple times around the web, which is that lavender doesn't actually like mechanistically do anything. Um, hmm. So there, there's a supposition I sometimes see that lavender only exerts its effects just due to associations people have built up with it. Like at some point people decided lavender is relaxing, so we're going to make lavender scented creams and oils and stuff um, and, and aromatherapy and whatnot. And so you're trying to relax. You smell lavender when you're trying to relax. And so you just come to associate lavender with relaxation, but yeah. lavender itself doesn't actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, there, therefore, ingested lavender wouldn't do anything. Like it would just be the smell of lavender that would have effects. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be completely true. So there is uh, like in vitro Petri dish research on the the bioactive compounds present in lavender, um, finding that they have effects on the NMDA receptor and the serotonin transporter. And most like psychological effects they would have would probably be downstream of those effects. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a... Uh, a meta-analysis of human studies on lavender, finding that uh, lavender usage seems to have a small but statistically significant effect on measures of stress and anxiety. Um, There was also a systematic review published uh, a couple years ago. so just a just a systematic review, not meta-analysis. The the studies had too much heterogeneity to bother like pooling and statistically analyzing. Mm-hmm. But most of the studies that have looked at the effects of lavender on sleep have broadly positive results. Um, so it like examine.com said, it is promising. Um, but I think due to its mechanistic effects, um, it's probably if it if it does help sleep it probably does so primarily by having effects on stress and anxiety um it could be general stress and anxiety or maybe just anxiety about falling asleep Mm -hmm. if you're if you're a poor sleeper you know it's it's hard to sleep if you're too stressed out um and so yeah if, if you are if you are stressed or you have specific stress and anxiety about sleep lavender might be able to help you out because that so it it doesn't seem to like increase melatonin production or affect like GABA signaling, which is a big thing in sleep as well. Like the the NMDA and serotonin related stuff, like that would be mostly related to stress and anxiety rather than sleep directly. Um, but yeah, like it it does seem to have like actual mechanistic effects. It's not all just about associations that people have with the scent of lavender. So. I, I could see ways where ingested lavender could potentially influence sleep secondary to maybe slightly decreasing stress and anxiety a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't expect a particularly large effect for anyone. Yeah. And in particular, people who aren't stressed out or stressed about sleep. Like I, for, for those folks, I doubt lavender would do much, if anything. Mm-hmm. One of the other things mentioned as an ingredient that I kind of pair with lavender in my mind is chamomile. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you know about chamomile? Yeah, so chamomile does seem to more directly influence sleep, or at least like biochemical pathways associated with sleep. Um, 
So also just as a general note, um, as is always the case, the, the research that I reference here will all be linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, but yeah, there was a, there was a 2019, uh, just kind of like broad meta-analysis on the effects of chamomile on various things, including state anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, insomnia, and sleep quality. Um, and it found that, um, chamomile did seem to not have much of an effect on uh, like state anxiety, but it might help a little bit with generalized anxiety disorder and might improve sleep quality a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll also link a cool paper that talks about the mechanisms by which chamomile exerts its effects. There are a lot of bioactive compounds in chamomile, but the most important one here uh, seems to be one called apigenin, which is a flavonoid. Um, and uh, apigenin itself seems to have like direct effects on relevant biochemical pathways associated with sleep. So it interacts with the benzodiazepine receptors in the brain and generally enhances GABA signaling. Mm. And that GABA is a generally inhibitory neurotransmitter. Like it, it does different things in different parts of the brain, but generally it, it just kind of, it's like a dimmer switch. It kind of like tones things down a little bit, makes it a little bit easier to relax. Nice. Um, so yeah, like chamomile, I, I would like to see more direct human research on the effects of chamomile on sleep, especially in people who aren't insomniacs or don't have some other type of sleep disorder like there 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 are a lot of times supplements or products or whatever that can have positive effects in people who have you know some sort of like quantifiable problem yeah but if you're a a normal sleeper or a good sleeper they're not really going to do anything for you so I, i would like to see more research on chamomile in that context and people who do already sleep pretty well and just want to sleep a little bit better um, but yeah, there's there's some some decent human evidence that it might improve sleep quality um, and mechanistic evidence that it does actually interact with neurochemical pathways that are directly relevant for sleep. So I, I think it's pretty promising. Um, but as was the case with lavender as well, I'm somewhat skeptical that there would be enough chamomile in yeah. these products to actually do much. So most of the human evidence, like most of the human studies that have tested the effects of chamomile on sleep, use a dosage of between 400 milligrams and two grams of chamomile extract per day, which is which is kind of a lot. Like I, I think that if you had that much chamomile in a bowl of cereal, it would just oh, taste overwhelmingly of chamomile. Yeah. And, and like same would apply to chocolate as well. Yeah. Also, just really quick. Um, that, that's all I had to say about chamomile, but I wanted to, to fact check myself real quick. Okay. The compound in chocolate that behaves a lot like caffeine is called theobromine. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I realized I had seen that word a lot, but had never said it out loud and how I thought it would be pronounced is, is not the phonetically correct way. Um, (laughs) so yes, theobromine, not thrombine. No idea where that came from. (laughs) That's okay. But yeah. Okay. Um, so chamomile, lavender, the other things that they mentioned were, um, zinc, folic acid, and B vitamins. 
And the marketing claimed that those things support natural melatonin production. Uh, Greg, what do you think about that? Is that how it works? Um, you know, I, I could see that simultaneously being a, a statement that's true, but also not super relevant for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I I looked around a little bit for this. I'm sure it's in a textbook somewhere that I couldn't find, but I, I was trying to find um, like detailed information on the like biochemistry of melatonin like it, it really really nitty-gritty stuff about melatonin synthesis because essentially you start with tryptophan you go through a few steps eventually you wind up with melatonin mm-hmm. um and most of the stuff i found was just kind of going through how the tryptophan originally tryptophan molecule changes with each reaction but it didn't necessarily go through what enzymes catalyze it and what cofactors and coenzymes like affect those enzymatic reactions. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if zinc, folic acid, B vitamins, uh, magnesium is one that's thrown in here as well. Sometimes I, I do not know if this is the case, but I would not be surprised at all if those vitamins and minerals were like coenzymes and cofactors for some of those chemical reactions. Like that wouldn't shock me at all. Um, but even if that, so if that is the case, the claim that those things support natural melatonin production would be completely true. But if your intake or like serum levels uh, of those vitamins and minerals were sufficient in the first place, yeah, taking in more probably won't further increase melatonin production. And those also aren't, vitamins and minerals with really high rates of insufficient intake yeah um so i i i think i think that the claim that that it supports natural melatonin production is both true and misleading yeah and since you mentioned the insufficient intake i i did paste some stuff in here specifically from your micronutrient article that you recently published um but We'll just go through each of these. So for zinc, the likelihood of insufficient intake is low. Most people in developed countries consume adequate amounts. Same with folic acid. Same with vitamin B6. Vitamin B12, the likelihood of insufficient intake is moderate. Um, Most adults generally consume adequate amounts of B12, but the likelihood of insufficient intake and low blood B12 levels is considerably higher for vegans and elderly people. Um, but there's, there's a lot better sources of vitamin B12 than just getting it in some random cereal. Um, you could get it from shellfish, liver, fatty fish, beef, and dairy products. Um, and then most vegans will need to use B12 supplements in order to achieve an adequate intake because plants don't synthesize vitamin B12. Um, though algae and seaweed like nori, uh, like seaweed snacks, dried seaweed can be a good vegan source of B12. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, B12 is an interesting little thing. It's um it's necessary for most life, but also really the only things that synthesize B12 are certain bacteria and also certain algae, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, and that's all, wild. Yeah, so all of the B12 that you consume comes from one of those sources. I don't know. Like maybe for for supplements, like maybe they they like 
biosynthesize it in in a lab now that wouldn't surprise me but from from natural food sources yeah like like algae makes b12 in the ocean and then uh yeah the the shellfish and whatnot that have high levels of b12 it's all just from things eating algae and kind of accruing that b12 which you then get um and for like animal like things not in the ocean that have b12 um a lot of it comes from ruminants where they have bacteria in their stomach that help them digest stuff and some of those bacteria produce b12 which the ruminant then absorbs and then it has b12 in its flesh and milk um so yeah that that's where that's where like all of the natural b12 comes from and so if you're uh, a vegan and don't consume animal products really the the way to go is kind of that algae route mm-hmm. so uh like you mentioned s- seaweed like nori is a pretty good source of b12 uh which which is an algae um but also they make vegan b12 supplements in the form mm-hmm. of of algae oil which is also a good uh a good source of um epa and dha as well nice but yeah, so that's that's about all I have to say about that in terms of, of like intake and sources. Yeah. Did you want to talk any about zinc? Yeah. So I, I do have a couple more things to say about zinc and B12 beyond just the general marketing claim of support natural melatonin production. Mm-hmm. So there there is some stuff suggesting that zinc and B12 might have independent effects on sleep independent and apart from uh supporting melatonin production and in the case of zinc it's it's one of those things that's kind of speculative like it's it's a bit of a where there's smoke there might be fire type of situation um so i'll I'll link a review uh in the show notes as well called dietary zinc acts as a sleep modulator which i think might be slightly too strong of a claim for the title of that paper but essentially what the research suggests with zinc is one, just on a pure associations level, people who sleep less tend to have lower blood concentrations of zinc, hmm. um, which could suggest that not sleeping enough depletes zinc levels in the blood, or it could suggest that people who don't eat enough zinc don't sleep uh, enough, or it could suggest that uh, behaviors that that something else is simultaneously influencing zinc concentrations and sleep, but those two things aren't like you know it's it's associations. So do with it what yeah. you will. But like the those associations have been observed. Like people who don't sleep as much do have lower blood levels of zinc. Um, there is surprisingly little direct human research on zinc supplementation and its effects on sleep, but mm. the stuff that does exist is is positive but inconclusive yeah so there have been uh two studies um looking at zinc supplementation in malnourished infants with pretty promising uh findings there was one study on insomniacs that found a like really large effect on sleep quality but interesting the the catch there is that it was combined supplementation with zinc, magnesium, and melatonin. So it's it's hard to know yeah. the extent to Can't which like those findings are attributable yeah. to zinc. Um, and then there was one study from Japan on healthy adults that, that slept pretty well. Um, 
that found positive effects on sleep onset latency and sleep efficiency, but the supplementation in the study wasn't just zinc straight up. Um, they increased zinc intake via consumption of oysters, which are very high in zinc, and zinc-rich yeast extracts. Um, I love to have a plate of oysters in bed. Uh, I don't. <laughs> Uh, but I don't either. You, I types. do not eat food in bed. That's gross. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, it's one of those things where it found positive effects when yeah. consuming zinc-rich foods. But that's there, interesting. There are other things in oysters and yeast extracts than zinc, so it might true. be attributable to something else. Um, there's also some interesting but kind of weird uh, rodent research. So, uh, just as background, mice sleep, mice generally sleep more during the day and less at night, but they also just kind of nap throughout the day. They, they don't really have the same sleep patterns and sleep archi architecture that we do, mm -hmm. um, but they, they average about 20 minutes per hour of sleep at night and about 40 minutes of sleep per hour during the day. Um, and so, some rodent research found that zinc at night which is generally when they're when rodents are more active, uh, decreased locomotor activity and increased uh, non-REM sleep. Um, so that's that's making them sleepier when they would generally be more active. Hmm. Um, but they they didn't find that effect uh, during the day when they would otherwise be sleepy. Weird. So it's it's hard to know exactly what to do with that. Yeah, except it does suggest that the zinc itself did have some effect on something related to sleep to make these rats sleep a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, or, or mice, I mean. Um, and they did also uh, test other, um, other like metallic cations similar to zinc to see if, to see if this was a generalized thing or a zinc specific thing. So they also tested manganese, iron and copper and they didn't observe similar effects with those other like metallic ions, suggesting that it might be something like specific to zinc. So anyway, it's you know it's it's hard to know exactly what to do with that because you know also we aren't mice and our sleep the the way we sleep is pretty different to how yeah. mice sleep. Uh, but it it does again suggest that zinc is directly doing something potentially yeah. related to sleep. Uh, and and the folks that wrote this paper. Um, suggested that it might have something to do with the concentration of zinc ions in cerebrospinal fluid and that that might directly influence sleep somehow. Um, essentially, so there's precedence for that to some extent because previous also rodent research has looked at the impact, associations and impact of different ion concentrations in cerebrospinal fluid on sleep. Mm -hmm. So looking at mice that are awake versus asleep and looking at concentrations of potassium, calcium, and magnesium levels in their cerebrospinal fluid. And they found that when they were awake, they saw higher levels of potassium, lower levels of calcium and magnesium. When they were asleep, lower levels of potassium, higher levels of calcium and magnesium which could just be a mere association it, it, or it might just be reflecting like metabolic changes within the brain and spinal cord, but it's not actually doing anything causal. Yeah. But then they experimentally said, Hey, what if we, what if we took the, the ion concentration scene when mice are asleep 
and injected that into their cerebrospinal fluid when they were awake. So, you know, we're just experimentally changing the ion solutions in their, or concentrations in their cerebrospinal fluid. Will that influence sleeper behavior? And it did. So if you took, like, low-level potassium, high-level calcium and magnesium, like, cerebrospinal fluid, and injected that into mice that were awake, they moved around less, slept more. So that, mm. that again, suggests some sort of causal relationship. So the, the folks that wrote, uh, that wrote this article about zinc suggested that maybe something similar with zinc is going on, but they're, they're, at least of the time that this article was published, wasn't direct research to confirm that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, we, we don't mechanistically know why zinc influences sleep, but there, there is some, circle, some circumstantial evidence to suggest that it does, and in more of a direct way than just influencing melatonin production. Interesting. Um, with vitamin B12 as well, there's some evidence uh, related to, to vitamin B12 and sleep, uh, again, suggesting that it might be doing something apart from like just being a cofactor for melatonin production or whatever. So there's a, a line of research suggesting that vitamin B12 might modulate uh, circadian rhythm by increasing the light sensitivity of the circadian clock, like in, in your brain. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this research in depth, uh, but basically it might help make you sleepy a little bit earlier, it, especially if your circadian rhythm has gotten fucked up. Um, so, you know, if you're, if ideally you might want your melatonin levels to be increasing at uh, like seven o'clock at night or whatever. Yeah. So they're high enough at 10 to go to sleep at 10 if you want to go to sleep at 10. But your circadian rhythm, like your your melatonin levels are peaking at midnight or whatever, like later than you actually want your bedtime to be. There's some evidence suggesting that uh, vitamin B12 might help with that a little bit hmm. by phase shifting your, your melatonin ramp up a little bit earlier in the day. Um, so that's like there's something there but like it's kind of speculative and there's yeah. not human research directly showing that it increases sleep quantity or sleep quality uh, and in fact there was a pretty recent study on b12 supplementation in humans finding like no measurable impact on sleep so it's it's one of those things where like speculatively i could potentially see see it having beneficial effects in specific circumstances yeah. like in particular if you if you have a really late chronotype or just if your circadian rhythm gets fucked up vitamin b12 might help make kind of that whole process slightly more sensitive to light to like help entrain a slightly better circadian rhythm shift that melatonin ramp up a little bit earlier mm -hmm. which might help you go to bed a little bit earlier um but again like that that this is like very speculative and that's kind of the only situation where I could see it directly potentially even having uh, a direct impact uh, apart from like quote unquote supporting natural melatonin production. Yeah. So to kind of wrap up some of these supplement questions, um, there are a couple other popular supplements that the other products mentioned. So 
Night food mentioned tryptophan and magnesium. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about those yet. Um, I've definitely seen those recommended before as relatively popular sleep supplements. And tryptophan is the thing that people always bring up on Thanksgiving, saying that like, oh, turkey has tryptophan. It's going to make you sleepy. I know that's mostly been debunked at this point, but I still, when I when I see the word tryptophan, I think of turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, both tryptophan and magnesium are listed as unproven supplements on Examine's sleep supplements page. Um, but Greg, do you want to talk at all about either of those? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to get into with tryptophan. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more later when I discuss, uh, macronutrients in particular. Oh, cool. But the, the big reason people are so interested in tryptophan is that tryptophan is, kind of the the basis for melatonin production. Mm -hmm. So your body starts with tryptophan, does some shit to it, like multiple chemical reactions occur, get different little functional groups put on it, and eventually it becomes melatonin. So uh, tryptophan levels in in your blood and tryptophan intake are certainly important for melatonin production Um, in much the same way that like uh, cholesterol, the molecule, is necessary for steroid hormone synthesis. Like it's it's a, a similar type of deal, um, and tryptophan is is definitely important for that reason. So in research that experimentally depletes uh, tryptophan levels in in the blood, mm. people do produce way less melatonin and sleep way less. Um, that like, sucks. Like if if they're fed a diet that is otherwise nutritionally adequate, but just has like no or very, very little tryptophan. Like that is something that is observed. Um, And there is some research on, some like kind of promising research on on tryptophan, uh, like supplementation and sleep. There was a 2022 um, meta-analysis and meta-regression on this. Finding one... There's not a ton of research on this. Like, there were only four articles uh, included in this meta. And it didn't find significant effects. Um, like, there have there haven't been consistent findings of significant effects on, like, total sleep time or total sleep quality or time spent in slow-wave sleep or REM or, like, m- most of the stuff that people might be interested in when it comes to sleep. Um But this meta-analysis did find that it might have an effect on uh, wake after sleep onset. Mm -hmm. Or if you read a lot of sleep studies, WASO, which I think is a fun acronym. Um, So yeah, like uh, potentially suggesting that if you're someone who wakes up frequently throughout the night and and maybe lays in bed a long time and struggles to get back to sleep after you wake up during the night... Ah, like maybe tryptophan might do a little bit, a little bit of something for you, but um, yeah, n- not as much as I think a lot of people expect. Like I think I think a lot of people look at it more mechanically than biology tends to function, where they they just think like, oh, tryptophan is the thing that becomes melatonin. So if I eat more tryptophan or supplement with tryptophan, I will make more melatonin, and melatonin causes me to sleep. Yeah. Therefore, I will sleep more. And that's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's not how like biological regulation yeah. works. If you already consume adequate amounts of tryptophan, putting more in there probably isn't going to necessarily increase melatonin production. Mm-hmm. And 
just more and more melatonin won't necessarily help you sleep more or better. Yeah. Um, Because there's a lot of other stuff going on with sleep. So, yeah, tryptophan, uh, I... Hmm. I th- I think I think examine might be being slightly too conservative by calling it unproven because like there there is again like a mechanistic reason to suspect that it might be beneficial especially for people who might have low tryptophan intake and then even for people who we assume are consuming adequate amounts of tryptophan it probably does or the, the current evidence suggests that it might decrease wake time after sleep onset to some extent. Uh, but yeah, you, you probably shouldn't expect the world from it. Yeah. Are most people consuming enough tryptophan? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, oh, man. I'm going from memory here, but I, I think I know this. Um, so tryptophan, I believe, is an essential amino acid. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's it's not one that your body can just synthesize on its own so like you do have to get it from your diet um but it's so like if you are a vegetarian or omnivore um animal animal products have plenty of tryptophan in them yeah like, you, you're you're not going to be eating too little tryptophan assuming you're eating enough protein mm-hmm. and not like not even bodybuilder levels of protein just like rda of protein yeah um and then for vegans, the, the the two most common amino acid deficiencies, if if there will be ones to exist, are lysine and methionine. Um, so I I believe that even with a vegan diet, which does have an elevated risk of maybe being uh, like deficient in some of the essential amino acids. Uh, tryptophan isn't high on the list of concern there so yeah I don't I don't think that's that much of a concern for most people unless just total protein intake is very low yeah yeah uh okay and then in the case of magnesium um there is some the the observational research is promising but Mm -hmm. the direct experimental research is considerably less promising so this is a direct quote from a 2023 uh, review titled the role of magnesium in sleep health a systematic review of available literature Um, so here's the quote observational studies suggested an association between magnesium statuses and sleep quality while the rcts reported contradictory findings this systematic review revealed an association between magnesium status and sleep quality, parentheses, daytime falling asleep, sleepiness, snoring, and sleep duration, close parentheses, according to the observational studies. While the randomized clinical trials showed an uncertain association between magnesium supplementation and sleep disorder, the association between dietary magnesium and sleep patterns needs well-designed randomized clinical trials with a larger sample size and longer follow-up time, parentheses, more than 12 weeks, to further clarify the relationship. So basically, um, you know, similar to zinc, the the cross-sectional research suggests that magnesium is pretty important. Like um, people who, who sleep well just tend to have higher blood magnesium levels than people who sleep poorly. Um, but there, there haven't been a ton of uh, like actual studies um like rcts and whatnot Mm -hmm. looking at the effects of magnesium supplementation on sleep quantity and quality 
And the stuff that does exist out there is uh, like kind of meh. Yeah. Uh, like some studies find positive effects that are that tend to be pretty small. Um, some studies don't. And yeah, o- overall, the experimental research is not that promising. Uh, but there might be a little bit of something there. So uh, there was another uh, another meta-analysis published in 2021 specifically on older adults with insomnia. Um, so not a huge body of literature, but there were three studies there. Um, and they found that in that specific population, magnesium supplementation uh, decreased sleep onset latency, which is basically like how long it takes you to fall asleep once you get in bed. Yeah. Um, decreased sleep onset latency by an average of about 17 minutes, which in uh, improved total sleep time by about 16 minutes. So... Eh, I don't know. Like if if you have insomnia, like I I assume an extra fifteen minutes of sleep, like you're you're probably not going to be mad about it. But yeah. it, it's probably also not going to be life changing. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think. Um, and additionally, all of the trials included in that meta analysis were graded as having a moderate to high risk of bias, and the outcomes were supported by a low to very low quality of evidence. So that's. That's basically where things stand on magnesium. Like it's, uh, I don't know. It's it's plausible that ten years from now there will be a lot more research and we can estimate effects more precisely. But it's in in you know maybe it does actually do something. But it's also one of those things where, with the studies that currently exist, if the effect the, the theoretical effect that might exist if it is not yet detectable that does suggest that it's probably a very small and inconsistent effect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like, I mean, I see so many people recommending magnesium and like, I know a lot of people who have tried it for sleep. I've tried it for sleep. I think you have too, Greg. Um, It feels like one of the really popular sleep supplements. So that's interesting to hear what the research actually says. Yeah. I I think it's, um, I think it's one of those things where, uh, I don't know. I I should I, I didn't I didn't look into this in my research for the podcast. I'm just I'm going from memory, and okay. my memory could be faulty. Um, I think magnesium might be kind of similar to what I said about lavender, where I th- I think there is some research that magnesium supplementation might help might help with like perceived stress and anxiety a, a little bit. Yeah. Um, particularly for people who might have elevated levels of stress and anxiety. So mm-hmm. it could, it could be that for that specific population, magnesium itself isn't directly improving sleep, but it might help kind of bring you down enough that the, the other things that would generally be promoting sleep can do what they're supposed to do to actually help you get to sleep. Um, so yeah, like I, I could see that being the case with magnesium, but for, to, to this point, it doesn't seem like just supplementing with magnesium indiscriminately for everyone has a particularly large or reliable effect on improving sleep. Right. Um, yeah. Co- so the next thing is the, the things in the sleepy chocolate. Yes. Yeah. So that's valerian and melatonin. Yes. Uh, Valerian is listed as an unproven supplement on Examine's guide again. And Mm -hmm. melatonin is 
one of the two listed as a secondary supplement along with lavender, as we've already talked about. So for valerian, um, the examine page said, the available randomized control trials examining the effectiveness of valerian for improving sleep have produced mostly mixed results. Yeah, I I think that that's a pretty fair assessment. Um, Valerian is one where there's really promising in vitro research. So much like chamomile, there's there's some bioactive molecules in valerian that do seem to enhance GABA signaling, which is generally inhibitory, helps bring you down, associated with good sleep, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. all good things. Um, But yeah, the, the human research, like, actually giving valerian to people and looking at effects on sleep isn't particularly positive. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is there are questions about whether the bioactive compounds that might by themselves improve sleep-related signaling, there are questions about whether they actually survive oral supplementation, Hmm. which is a a problem with some supplements and compounds in general. Like, you know, do they just get completely fucking destroyed by the hydrochloric acid in your stomach (laughs) or the slight basic environment in your small intestine or just like any of your digestive enzymes and does enough of them like do do enough of the molecules actually you know make it into your bloodstream to have their purported effects and in the case of valerian that's that that seems somewhat doubtful Mm -hmm. so it's like yeah, and I'm certainly not recommending this. Absolutely not. But just, just like theoretically, to to illustrate the point I'm making, if you could, like, if you got an IV drip of some of those compounds in valerian, um, maybe they would have a beneficial effect on sleep because you're bypassing digestion, just getting them right into your bloodstream. Um, I, I'm not saying that they would, but I'm saying that that would be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it. it seems somewhat doubtful that when you actually swallow them and eat them um that much if any of those potentially beneficial compounds for sleep actually get into your bloodstream yeah what a bummer yeah and then for melatonin um yeah i mean it it is it it pretty clearly works like it it is one of the only sleep supplements that the the, the general consensus, both of experts in the field and the data itself, it, like like melatonin does what it's supposed to do. Like it does help you sleep better. Yeah. Um, but like the examine page pointed out, the effects are pretty modest. Um, and they're primarily seen in people who either have sleep disorders or several risk factors for sleep disorders. So if you're already a pretty decent sleeper and you supplement with melatonin, um, you, you potentially could still expect a small decrease in sleep onset latency and maybe a small improvement in sleep quality, mm-hmm. but it's probably not going to make a night and day difference. Like I, I think, I think with, with a lot of supplements, people come into them with dramatically excessive expectations. Yeah. And I think that's especially true for melatonin. Yeah. People think it's like a pharmaceutical. Well, it is in Europe. Oh, fair enough. Um, yeah, so uh, there there are a few things going on. Like melatonin is a hormone, mm-hmm. and I think people, for for understandable reasons, um, they 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 know what hormones are on a 
rough conceptual level. And they have this idea that like, ah, if my hormones are out of whack or something's too high or too low, like that's going to have really big physiological changes. Um, and, and that certainly can be true Mm -hmm. for certain hormones. Uh, but you know, not, not all hormones are created equal. Mm -hmm. Um, and like in the case of melatonin, like it's, it's not like that strong of a hormone, I guess. Um, and also it doesn't exclusively just do sleep related stuff. Melatonin is also kind of a general purpose antioxidant. Um, like we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the episode, but, um, like a lot of plants have some levels of melatonin in them. Mm-hmm. And I think that confuses some people cause it's like plants don't need to sleep. What's going on here? <laughs> it's like, it's silly plants. They don't need to sleep. Yeah. But, but melatonin, um, is, is a pretty conserved compound. Like it does and, and like, I'm using that in the evolutionary sense, like a lot of different branches of the tree of life produce melatonin and it probably initially started being produced like hundreds of millions if not billions of years ago long long time ago nice um because it is like a very effective general antioxidant mm-hmm. um and the current theory is that it initially kind of evolved and became a thing that probably single-celled organisms started producing to help protect against oxidative damage from like uh reactive oxygen species formation from mitochondria um the so powerhouse yeah powerhouse of the cell do what powerhouse, powerhouse of, of the cell. cell yeah absolutely so oh, I know. yeah like like melatonin does certainly have effects on like brain neurochemistry and is a hormone that is uh that affects sleep and can improve sleep mm-hmm. especially if you don't if, if your pineal gland isn't producing enough melatonin on its own, like th- those are all true, mm-hmm. but yeah, like not, not all hormones are like blasting gear or, <laughs> and they, they won't all have the magnitude of effects that women experience when they go through menopause. Like, and in the case of melatonin, like it's, it's, it's a hormone, but it's, you know, like take, taking a melatonin pill is not the same thing as like pinning two grams of trend. And I, <laughs> there's a lot of confusion about that. No, like I, I don't think anyone <laughs> like explicitly believes that. Claim, yeah, I know. But I think mean. a lot of people have in their mind that like, oh, melatonin hormone, hormone, powerful, scary, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and since it's powerful, it will therefore fucking knock me out. Yeah. As if it's ambient. Exactly. Um, And it, it doesn't. No. So yeah, like it, it helps, but, but if, if you take it, don't, Don't expect the world. All right. I think that gets us through the specific supplements that were mentioned in those products that we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, I I guess I'll just say to end this section, um, if you want to try any of these or other sleep supplements, um, we'd recommend you check out Examine Sleep Supplement Guide for more information. Obviously, I've referenced it like a thousand times already, but very good resource. Um, overall though, I obviously don't think it's efficient, both in terms of dose and the monetary cost to get your sleep related vitamins, minerals, and supplements from these products, like from the cereal, from the chocolate, from the cookies and ice cream. Um, so now we're going to move into what the science actually says about nutrition and sleep and like some specific recommendations that we have. Um, we'll start with snacks since the kind of premise of this of the beginning of this episode was about like ooh eating cereal as your little pre-bed snack 
So if you'd like to have a snack before bed and want to see if consuming foods that are naturally rich in magnesium, tryptophan, or melatonin work for you, um, I found some examples of items on sleepfoundation.org that are rich in some of these micronutrients. So a banana with almond butter will get you some magnesium. Oatmeal would get you some magnesium and melatonin. Pistachios, melatonin and tryptophan. And yogurt for calcium, protein, vitamins B6 and B12 and magnesium. I also um, reread an article by Eric Trexler published in volume five of Mass where he recommends trying tart cherry juice and kiwi fruit as pre-bed snacks as well. Tart cherry juice contains melatonin and increases the bioactivity of tryptophan and kiwi is thought to enhance sleep due to its serotonin and folate content. I, I just wanted to note, I am slightly uh, skeptical about uh, claims related to melatonin in food directly affecting sleep. Um, So yeah, like like I mentioned before, lots of plants produce a little bit of melatonin primarily to serve as an antioxidant. Um, And the, there, there's again, kind of like cross-sectional research looking at associations between uh, uh, food, intake of foods rich in melatonin and sleep quantity and quality that does tend to be pretty positive, but that is also potentially confounded because most, most of the foods that are going to be rich in melatonin are just like associated with generally good diet quality and generally good health. Like it's, it's mostly like fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So it could simply be that people who eat a generally healthy diet are generally healthier and generally uh, engage in more behaviors that um, might uh, more directly influence sleep quality. And the melatonin content of the foods they consume is just kind of a latent construct almost that's like associated with all of those other good things, but not actually causal. Um, And I found a very interesting review from this past year that I'm going to talk about quite a bit more later when I talk about carbohydrates um, that wa- that that also addressed this issue, like the, the melatonin content of foods and whether or not that was likely to actually influence sleep. And so the thing is, there is melatonin in some food products, but most of those food products don't actually have much melatonin in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're talking like, I don't know, five micrograms or some shit like that. Yeah. And so, you know, th- this guy basically makes the case that, yeah, like th- th- it's, this is something that's true, but also probably not useful. Like there is melatonin in foods. If you eat more of these foods, you will be consuming more melatonin but it's pretty unlikely that you would end up consuming enough melatonin to actually move the needle on sleep. Yeah, that makes sense. Tart tart cherries are potentially the one exception of that mm. because among plants that do produce melatonin, it does have like particularly high levels. Uh, but you, you would still need to eat a shitload of tart cherries to consume enough melatonin. But But tart cherry juice might might potentially have enough melatonin okay. to actually have an effect but i'm 
I am somewhat skeptical about like the oatmeal or yeah. uh, like like milk has a little melatonin in it. Like I'm 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 skeptical about yeah. that. Um, for kiwi specifically, um, so in in the mass article you referenced, uh, kiwi was recommended due to its serotonin and folate content. Uh, and, and the thing with serotonin is that is part of the the pathway of melatonin synthesis. Like you start with tryptophan, you, you get some other things, and then you get serotonin, and then the serotonin is converted to melatonin. Um, so yeah, like, like kiwi does have some serotonin in it. And there is actually not a ton of human evidence looking at the effects of kiwi on sleep, but there are three studies, and they're all like quite positive. Um including one in athletes, and, and that will all be linked in the show notes uh, like everything else will. So, um, yeah, it, it does seem like consuming kiwi, and that includes fresh kiwi. Some of these studies used, uh, like, dried kiwi. Some used kiwi juice, and it all it all seemed to be pretty good. Um, but I'm, I, I am somewhat skeptical that it's due to the folate and serotonin content. Mm. I think it's more likely to be due to apigenin, much like chamomile, hmm. um, like that is the the bioactive compound in chamomile that is most likely to influence sleep, uh, interacts with the benzodiazepine receptor, influence ga- influences GABA-related signaling. So uh, kiwi also has relatively high concentrations of apigenin in it. And so, yeah, like it, it does seem like ki- eating kiwi before bed improves sleep. And I yeah, it could be the serotonin, could be the folate. I suspect it's more so due to the apigenin, though. Yeah. Yeah, so now we've talked about specifically, like, pre-bed snacks. And I think, Greg, you have some stuff about just overall diet and how your nutrition can impact sleep. I do. I do. So... Let me start by giving a bit of an introduction for the kind of purported mechanistic pathway that a lot of claims related to uh, like macronutrient intake and sleep tend to follow. And most of that is due to um, like like tryptophan related metabolism. So, okay. Essentially, here's what's going on. Okay. You have transporters uh, that allow things to cross your blood-brain barrier. Like, like mo- most things in your blood don't make it into your brain, but certain things can. They have to cross the barrier. And there are specific transporters for the stuff that can make it into your brain. And there, there's, like, some, like, little things that can kind of squeak through. But most of the time, like, larger things like amino acids or whatever need to be transported via one of these transporters. And there is a single transporter for all large neutral amino acids, which includes tryptophan, but also includes um, a lot of other amino acids. Like, I, I don't remember all of them right off the top of my head, but I know that, like, histidine, leucine, isoleucine, valine, uh, a couple others are, are in the category of large yeah. neutral amino acids. And so... There is this idea that if you consume carbohydrate, and in particular, like high glycemic carbohydrate, like sugar, white bread, uh, something along those lines, before bed, 
that will improve sleep by increasing tryptophan uptake in the brain. Because essentially, all of the large neutral amino acids are competing for for that single transporter. Mm. And a lot of these amino acids, you have higher levels in your bloodstream than you do for tryptophan. Mm -hmm. So less tryptophan is getting into your brain relative to some of these other large neutral amino acids. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and a lot of these... Uh, large neutral amino acids are amino acids that are present in relatively high quantities and concentrations in muscle tissue and are and their uptake into muscle tissue is sensitive to insulin. Um, so the idea is you eat carbohydrate, particularly high glycemic carbohydrate, uh, soon before bed. That will increase uh, insulin release and increase amino acid uptake into the muscle and, prefer and preferentially, a lot of those other large neutral amino acids will be taken up by the muscle, leaving relatively higher concentrations of tryptophan relative to those other amino acids in your blood. Therefore, more tryptophan molecules will make it through the large neutral amino acid transporter, crossing the blood-brain barrier, getting into the brain, and then being available for melatonin synthesis. Um, that is... Th that is basically the story that is told. Yeah. Um, and it's like like a lot of other things in this episode, both completely true and also typically completely irrelevant. Yeah. Um, so essentially, that does that does apply if it's been a long, long time since your last meal containing protein. And if you don't consume any protein in your final meal before bed, like it, it is just carbohydrate, um, there, there is evidence suggesting that that will like marginally increase tryptophan uptake into the brain. There's not good evidence suggesting that that does actually increase sleep, but kind of that mechanistic pathway is, is partially supported. But there are implications of that that aren't supported by the general evidence. So one of one of the issues with this is that there has been other research that has been done looking to see basically how much protein would you need to consume with the carbohydrate in order for it to uh, like basically to completely get rid of the effect mm -hmm. um, because you know you, you eat protein you're also consuming more large neutral amino acids that will then be in higher concentrations in your blood, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like if the total protein content of that final carbohydrate-containing meal exceeds like 5% of total calories, the increased uptake in tryptophan in the brain completely goes away. And so uh, an implication of that is just that like consuming protein before bed should fuck up your sleep because it's, it would then be putting more amino acids into your bloodstream that would be competing with, with tryptophan. Um, but protein overall seems to have like a neutral to positive effect on sleep. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like a, a lot of claims related to macronutrient distribution and sleep relate to that, okay. that purported like mechanistic uh, uh, pathway. But the... the review that I mentioned earlier that talked about the melatonin content of food, like it... It talks about this in considerably more depth and discusses like why it is uh, like almost never particularly relevant. 
Um, so yeah, that, that'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, like moving on from that, now that, now that that background has been established, um, let's first talk by, or just talk about kind of like all of the macronutrients together. Does, does your macronutrient distribution, Mm. like your ratio of proteins to carbs, to fat, et cetera, um, influence sleep? And the research suggests eh, probably not all that much. Uh, So there was a 2020 meta-analysis, and here's just a brief quote from it. A total of 19 relevant articles were selected, and it was observed that good sleepers, which they operationally defined as sleeping greater than or equal to seven hours per night, with a global sleep score uh, less than or equal to five, Um, sleep latency under 30 minutes, sleep efficiency above 85%, like that was their operational definition. So good sleepers had a a slightly higher energy distribution from uh, dietary protein than poor sleepers. On the other hand, good sleepers showed a relatively lower percentage of energy from dietary carbohydrate and fat than poor sleepers. However, meta-regression analysis revealed no dose-dependent association between the macronutrient distribution and sleep duration. These results suggest that consuming a greater proportion of dietary protein may uh, benefit, may have benefits on improving sleep quality in healthy adults. However, findings may be susceptible to reverse causality. So, where does that leave us? Okay, so yeah, let's let's break this down a little bit. So essentially, what they found is that good sleepers consumed a little bit more protein and a little bit less fat and carbohydrate than people who didn't meet those criteria for being good sleepers. Mm -hmm. But uh, there wasn't a dose-response relationship observed, which if higher protein intakes were mechanistically, like, causing sleep to improve, you would expect some type of dose-response relationship. May not not be linear. It could be that, you know, you see gradual improvements till protein gets up to like 30% of calories and then levels off or or whatever. But you should expect some sort of discernible dose response relationship, but they didn't see that, Um, which suggests kind of like I was talking about before, it could be that a a, a macronutrient distribution within a certain realm is just associated with other health promoting yeah. and sleep promoting activities. So Definitely. people who are more interested in like fitness and their health and whatnot are probably the people who are eating slightly higher levels of protein yep. and also sleeping somewhat better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of suspect that's what's going on. Uh, but it, it does, it does at least throw water on the idea that protein intake would have a negative effect on sleep quality okay. mm-hmm. or if it, or if it does, like it wasn't detectable in this data. Um, so yeah, like, like protein, I, I personally don't think that like trying to get super high levels of protein intake will actually improve your sleep. But this meta does suggest that in my opinion, I think it mostly suggests that protein has a neutral effect on sleep, Yeah. but it, it, it kind of in the realm of neutral to slightly positive. Okay. Uh, moving on to sugar and carbohydrates. I wanted to talk about sugar first. Like we... We wanted to talk about the effect of sugar intake on sleep a little bit more because uh, you were talking about cereal, chocolate, cookies, yeah. et cetera. Um, and, and I was like, you know, sugar is 
something that the medical establishment is currently quite concerned about, like high levels of sugar intake, mm-hmm. high levels of added sugar intake. People eating marshmallows for breakfast. People eating marshmallows for breakfast. And there's also a lot of concern and research attention on sleep because people do seem to be sleeping less than before. Sleep quality doesn't seem to be as good as it used to be. So you would think that there would be a lot of research at that intersection looking at the effect of sugar on sleep. Yeah. There was surprisingly little. Hmm. And a lot of the stuff that did exist um, was stuff just looking at associations and it was it was based on like larger data sets that are collected for different purposes where you know you're collecting a ton of data about people but you also include like food recall surveys or food frequency questionnaires that ask about the frequency of consumption of various products that are high in sugar or are sugar sweetened mm-hmm. and so that's where most of the evidence comes from and uh it was <laughs> it was kind of funny like this uh, there, there was a 2023 meta on the topic that will be linked in the show notes, but basically it found that like in kids, just like total higher sugar consumption was, uh, associated with worse sleep. Um, but the thing about sugar consumption is a lot of people get most of their sugar from sugar sweetened beverages, mm-hmm. uh, and in particular sodas Yeah, and sodas also have most of them also have caffeine in them Mm, so yeah that affects sleep in kids they found a a significant uh, negative effect of total sugar intake on sleep but they found a even higher negative effect of soda intake on sleep which makes sense now we're getting into the realm of is this the sugar is it the yeah the caffeine right and then furthermore what is another class of sugar-sweetened beverages where intake is currently on the rise uh, in America and also, like, worldwide? You guessed it, fucking energy drinks, which were <laughs> included in kind of the total sugar How consumption and sugar-sweetened beverage intake data. Uh, but, yeah, what do you know? Increased <laughs> consumption of energy drinks was also associated with with worse sleep. But it's breaking news. Yeah, that, that's, that's, in, that's a no-shit type yeah. of finding. Um data on uh data on adults um there there was less research on adults in general like there a a lot of the concern with this is like sugar intake in kids because kids eat way more sugar than adults less restraint etc right um but yeah the in in adults like soda intake was also um associated with like a 20 percent uh higher rate of getting uh, less than sufficient sleep mm. and uh, consuming more energy drinks was associated with a 58% increase oh, no. in insufficient sleep. <laughs> but again, it, like it's, it's hard to chalk that up to yeah. sugar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know the, like, I, I kind of suspect that consuming a ton of sugar before bed probably isn't ideal for sleep. But yeah. the, the research on that is, is, Less than you would expect it to be. Well, murky. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. So there was a 2021 meta-analysis moving beyond sugar, just talking about carbohydrate uh, more generally. Mm-hmm. There was a 2021 uh, systematic review and meta-analysis that I believe was reviewed in mass back in the day. Um, but yeah, it, it was looking at um, like carbohydrate... Uh, 
uh, like total carbohydrate intake and also uh, like glycemic index of the carbohydrate being consumed and its effects on like really everything associated with sleep. So quantity, quality, wake time after sleep onset, sleep latency, time spent in each sleep stage, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it found that low carbon take, high carbon take, low glycemic carbon take, high glycemic carbon take uh, didn't really seem to be associated with like major differences in total sleep time, total sleep efficiency, um, all of that stuff. But they did find that lower carbohydrate intake was associated with more uh, like slow wave sleep and higher carb intake was associated with more REM sleep. And uh, similar with, um, so high glycemic index carbs were associated with slightly higher sleep efficiency, while low GI carbs were associated with slightly improved sleep onset latency. Oh no! Which one do you do? Yeah, it's it's kind of a coin. You can't do both? Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's... And also, like the the effect sizes there were all like pretty yeah, pretty moderate. That like, makes sense. In terms of like the the they used uh, effect sizes in the Cohen's D family, and the differences they found were kind of in the point three to point four range, if memory serves, which are yeah like modest effect sizes. Um. So yeah, like it's it's hard to know what to do with that. Like, <laughs> you know, I generally slow wave sleep and REM sleep are the, are the two like most important sleep stages. Like that's how it's generally conceived of. And yeah. like, ah, uh, yeah. Low carb is good for one. High carb is better for the other. Uh, you, you probably want good sleep efficiency, but you also want to fall asleep quickly when you go to bed and like high GI is good for one. Low GI is good for the other. And again, like we're, we're talking, uh, more associations here. So yeah, like the, it's it's kind of a wash. Uh, like it, th- this adds to the discussion that maybe total carbohydrate intake and glycemic index c- could be affecting sleep in some way, but it's hard to directly say if the impact is positive or negative or if it's just doing different things, you know? Right. Uh, moving on, there was... Um, there was a 2022 uh, narrative review looking at the effects of dietary carbohydrate profiles on uh, nocturnal metabolism, sleep, and general well-being. And uh, I mostly just wanted to mention this uh, and link it in the show notes because it brings up an interesting possibility that um, glycemic regulation might be playing a role in all of this and, and might partially explain why high and low GI carbs might have slightly different effects overall and maybe even different effects for different people Hmm. so there is quite a bit of research uh, showing that poor glycemic control is associated with worse sleep quality and maybe even like causative of worse sleep quality and one of the potential explanations there is that uh like poor glycemic control could influence other hormones that relate to glucose availability, but also could have negative impacts on sleep. So if your blood sugar gets too low, 
Or if you are like pre-diabetic or whatever, and so your body can't use the glucose that's already in your blood particularly well, mm -hmm. something that can happen is, is your body will be like, oh, hey, like we, we need more glucose in our blood to, you know, provide fuel for the stuff that needs it. Um, so two of the hormones that your body might release to increase glucose availability, like cause your body to break down more glycogen, release it into the bloodstream, are cortisol and norepinephrine, which both have generally negative impacts on sleep. Yeah. Uh, they, they tend to promote like wakefulness. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that a lot of the stuff related to total carbohydrate intake or carb quality or GI might generally be more relevant for people with worse blood glucose control. So for a lot of people, it just doesn't seem to matter because your, your body, your pancreas like handles all of that pretty well. But for, for people who might be kind of walking down the road to prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, um, it, it could be that for them, because their glycemic control is worse, um, the carbohydrate quantity and quality might become more relevant for them due to the effects of stuff like cortisol and norepinephrine trying to uh, like maintain glucose availability throughout the night. Um, and then going back to the 2022 narrative review that I mentioned previously when uh, talking about both melatonin content of foods and also um, uh, oh, the, the, the tryptophan and carbohydrate and insulin related mm. pathway, large neutral amino acid transporter. So I've, I've brought this up twice already, and I, I would highly recommend you read this like this was. I think my favorite paper I read when preparing for this nice. episode, because it's, um, I don't know, it's, it, it has the vibe of someone who is just intensely frustrated with his entire field. Um, <laughs> Iconic. Which, which is, which is fun. Cause like a lot of this just comes down to like, Hey, a lot of people are making claims that, that, and this is kind of a theme in this episode are like technically true, but probably not relevant to most of the shit we're studying. Like, yeah. like you talk about melatonin in foods and like, yeah, it's there, but probably not enough to actually matter. Mm -hmm. You talk about this, this mechanism related to insulin causing uh, BCAA disposal and that allowing greater tryptophan uptake into the brain and melatonin synthesis. And like, yeah, that's true. But like, if people are consuming any protein, like it, it becomes irrelevant. Like, come on like what the fuck are you talking about so it's 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 a guy who's like grinding an axe in a very professional way um while also cutting through a lot of what he perceives to be the, as the bullshit in his field yeah. so it's it's a it's a really fun paper i think um but the the case that that the authors of this paper make is that um and this this kind of builds on what I was talking about before with the glycemic control, glucose regulation. He he basically makes the case that um, the effects of carbohydrate on sleep are primarily like regulated or modulated by brain energy status. Um, and I'll I will readily admit here that some of the neurophysiology he discusses in this paper goes over my head, like. Like I talked about on the aspartame episode, I'm not a rodent physiology guy. I am also not a neurophysiology guy. Like I, I know I have plenty of, uh, of, of blind spots there. Um, 
But yeah, he, he seems to be making a similar case to what I was discussing with the prior study with like the cortisol, norepinephrine, energy status, whatever. Um, so basically the, the case being laid out is that um, like certain neurons that promote sleep need to have adequate glucose supply to like do what they need to do to like ramp up neurochemical pathways to actually promote sleep and restfulness. Um, but that if like if if energy levels and energy availability is too high, um, that will just further ramp up the activity of just every other part of the brain mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. which most of your brain isn't used to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's like a little bit of a balancing act, I guess. Um, and, and this would also in part, like partially explain some of the stuff I talked about before related to total carbohydrate intake and quality and like sleep architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, so like the, your, your brain uses a lot more energy during REM sleep than the other sleep stages. Mm -hmm. Cause like it, you're, it's using an amount of energy that's like comparable to, to being awake even. Whereas like during other stages of sleep and specifically slow wave sleep, brain energy usage is way, way lower. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th this would essentially explain why like maybe higher carbohydrate intake might be beneficial for REM sleep because your, your brain just has more energy to do all of the stuff it does in, in REM sleep. Whereas like if, uh, if like glucose availability and energy availability is too high, it might be too stimulatory just on a purely bioenergetic level right. to settle into a bunch of slow wave sleep. Um, anyway, yeah, it was, it was an interesting paper. Like he, he contends that, um, yeah, total carbohydrate intake and carbohydrate quality do do probably affect total sleep time and sleep architecture to some extent, but it might be due more so to energy status rather than that kind of like tryptophan melatonin synthesis related pathway. Uh, but yeah, really cool paper. And that's all I have to say about carbohydrate. Do you, do you have any questions or comments about that before we before we move on? I don't think so. I'd like to know about protein. Okay, perfect. Uh, so protein. As I mentioned before, that 2020 meta-analysis, just looking at just general macronutrient ratios, tended to find a, a generally, like, positive associations with higher protein intake, but, you know, again, hard to separate correlation from causation. There was also a 2023 uh, meta-analysis uh, its purpose was to uh, examine the effects of increased protein intake, which they defined as uh, at least one gram per kilo per day, or at least 25% of total energy intake, or supplementation of at least 10 grams of protein per day on sleep outcomes in adults. So here is a direct quote from that paper. Uh, 12 intervention studies reported on in 10 articles were included. The qualitative analyses showed that increased protein consumption has little influence on sleep outcomes. Only subjective sleep quality was positively associated with protein consumption in a few studies. Meta-analyses also showed no significant effect of increased protein intake on sleep outcomes uh, with very low certainty of evidence. However, results from sensitivity analyses, excluding high-risk studies, 
suggest a small effect on sleep quality in favor of higher protein intake. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's about what we got. So, kind of, that, that comports pretty well with what I was saying about the study on the, the macronutrient ratios. Yeah. Like, you, you do maybe see slightly better sleep in people consuming more protein, but in studies that are like experimentally testing it, it doesn't seem like increased protein intake really has a positive or negative effect on sleep. Like it might, it might have a small effect on subjective sleep quality, but it's, it's probably just not all that important. Um, and, and don't take that too far. Like it, it is important. Like if, if you're consuming no protein whatsoever, (laughs) so you're consuming no tryptophan, your sleep's going to suck. There's going to be a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah. Not just your sleep. But within kind of the range of protein intakes that most humans consume, it just doesn't seem like it is either that strongly associated with sleep outcomes or like causative of different sleep outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on. Uh, so so most of the research looking at the, the effects of macronutrients on sleep have focused on carbohydrate and protein. There's a little bit on fat worth bringing up. Um, so there's there's some research on the effect of omega o- omega 3s on sleep. Um, and some effects have been observed in infants and children, but not so much in adults. Although there haven't there hasn't been a ton of research on that. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one study suggesting that maybe higher levels of saturated fat intake might be somewhat bad for sleep. Um, when the study was published, I saw a lot of people talking about it and catastrophizing about it a little bit. Like mm-hmm. it, it does, it, it does suggest that saturated fat is bad, but it's all, it is also just one study. Mm-hmm. And, uh, due to how much concern people have about sleep and how much concern there is in the nutritional establishment about saturated fat intake. Mm-hmm. And the fact that both of those things are quantified in a lot of really big data sets, I do kind of think that if there were strong associations yeah. between saturated fat intake and sleep, it would be like pretty strongly known. So uh, take this with a grain of salt. But there was uh, a study from I think I think maybe like 2016, like it's yeah yeah 2016. So like recent-ish, but now seven years ago. But I, I remember when this was published. Um, and, and people like freaked out about it a mm-hmm. little bit, but, um, the, the way this study worked is there were three days of controlled feeding followed by one day of ad libitum feeding. So like basically people ate a prescribed controlled diet for three days and then one day they just ate whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the researchers observed baseline sleep architecture in response to the control diet and then they observed how it changed during the day when people just consumed what they wanted to. And they found that higher fiber intake was associated with uh, more slow wave sleep and higher saturated fat intake was associated with less slow wave sleep. So, you know, it's, I think it's somewhat hard to know what to do with that because, yeah. you know, it, it, once again, like correlation versus causation. This this is like a semi-experimental design, but it wasn't like an RCT. So it can't necessarily establish causation. And, you know, it, it could just be that, again, folks who are generally 
healthier and more concerned about that stuff and you know maybe just typically have healthier eating patterns and healthier lifestyles in general were the ones when they're like "Ooh, i'm back in control of my diet i'm going to eat more fiber rich foods yeah and then the people who like maybe don't care quite as much about their health and you know the, the basically the saturated fat intake is just like a correlate for a lot a lot of other like lifestyle factors and other shit that could be influencing sleep yeah. so yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't uh put too many eggs in that basket but there there is at least some suggestion that high intakes of saturated fat might negatively affect uh slow wave sleep mm-hmm. um and then finally i guess just kind of to wrap up uh this section there was a 2021 paper from uh, from annual reviews and it, uh, it it sums up a lot of the association studies here and and this will be linked in the show notes but ba- basically when you just look at cross-sectional research everything you think of is like oh yeah that's a good diet like high in fruits and vegetables like whatever like plenty of protein, low saturated fat. Like yeah. Basically what you think of as a healthy diet is also the diet that is generally like the dietary patterns that are generally associated with good sleep. Um and f- for the fifth time, hard to know if that's yeah. causal or mere associations, right. but um yeah, j- just in total to kind of sum up this section the, the research on, like, macronutrients and diet quality and all of that generally suggests that, like, you probably don't need to do anything crazy with your diet to promote good sleep. Nice. Um, like, moderate macronutrient distributions seem to be fine if you eat, but if you eat less carbs and more fat than that, it's also fine. You might get a little more slow-wave sleep out of it. If you eat a little more... Uh, uh, fat and a little or a little more carbs a little less fat you might get a little bit more rim sleep out of it but overall sleep will be pretty fine mm-hmm. if you eat more total protein relative to fat and carbohydrates maybe it'll improve subjective sleep quality a little bit yeah but like eh, probably not that big of a deal and um yeah i mean who knows maybe the melatonin content of plants is directly beneficial or like maybe people who live otherwise healthy sleep promoting lives do just tend to eat more fruits and vegetables but yeah just just like eating eating a normal fucking diet seems to be fine for sleep and um uh yeah don't consume too many energy drinks like that was that was a pretty strong finding (laughs) yeah yeah um but yeah like i i i see a lot of people who are looking for kind of like diet hacks to sleep better right and in my read of the research, it it doesn't really seem like they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, like most most diets can be diets that are compatible with good sleep, but by the same token, if you have bad sleep, there probably aren't any just like really simple diet. Th- there probably aren't any simple dietary tweaks that will massively change that. Yeah. Um, I, I could potentially see that being the case for people with poor blood glucose regulation mm-hmm. for, for some of the other, uh, for some of the reasons previously discussed. Um, but even that's still like somewhat speculative. So 
yeah, for the most part, it, it would be nice if I could say like, hey, stick to this particular macronutrient distribution and your sleep will, will be way better according to the yeah. research. But the research just doesn't support any claims like that, unfortunately. But also, fortunately, for flexibility, because like most yeah. most ways you could want to eat are probably just fine for, right. for getting good That's sleep. That's good. Yeah. All right. That's all that we prepared about pre-sleep nutrition. But like you mentioned at the top of the episode, we asked in the communities for people to send in questions about this topic. So let's go ahead and answer some of those. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um so let's start with a question from Justin Collins. Hey Greg, here's one for pre-sleep nutrition. So protein before bed is something that tends to be emphasized a lot as one last chance to get some extra muscle protein synthesis going on. And for me, I tend to find that if I get protein too close to bed that I tend to overheat quite a bit, thus losing in sleep quality. Is there any research on this? Um, it's something that I don't see talked about a lot, and I wanted to get your thoughts and maybe what your view of the research says about the loss of sleep quality versus that extra muscle protein synthesis. Thanks. All right, yeah, so uh, that is that is a good question. And one thing to keep in mind when when discussing anything related to human research is that individual mileage may vary. Um, so the research looking at pre-sleep nutrition in aggregate doesn't suggest that eating protein uh, right before, pretty soon before bed, uh, on average decreases sleep quality. Uh, but it is also entirely possible that it decreases sleep quality for you. So if that's the case, just one thing to note about the pre-sleep protein literature is that it does tend to find that if you consume protein right before you go to bed, um, protein synthesis is obviously higher overnight. And so total like 24 hour protein synthesis might be higher. Um, and there's even, I believe, a longitudinal study looking at the effects of like actually giving people protein before bed uh, in a resistance training context over like eight to 12 weeks or something like that, finding that it improved uh, hypertrophy outcomes. But one thing to note is that the longitudinal studies on the topic that exist um, haven't been matched for total protein intake. Um, so basically, like say you have a group consuming 120 grams of protein a day, the other group that is provided pre-sleep protein might get 40 grams of protein before sleep. Mm -hmm. So now they're consuming 160 grams yeah. of protein per day. And so it's hard to say whether the beneficial effects seen are due to the pre-sleep protein in particular or just higher total protein in general. Right. And so, um, one, I'm, I am not sold on the idea that pre-sleep protein intake is necessarily special if you're equating total protein intake. Um, so if you're finding that consuming protein before bed uh, is negatively affecting your, your sleep quantity or quality, I'd say just consume that protein at some other point and it'll probably be fine. Like I don't, I, I'm, I, I understand why some people think that that pre-sleep feeding window is a crucial time for mm -hmm. protein intake. Um, but I'm, 
I'm just not I'm just not sold on it. Like I, I would want to see research comparing protein matched uh, uh, conditions with maybe like 40 grams before bed versus 40 grams immediately after waking up right to see if you you actually to see if you observed different outcomes over time with that sort of setup versus a non-matched thing where people are consuming more protein before bed and the other group is just consuming less protein overall. Um, so yeah, if, if you're experiencing that consuming protein before bed is making you hot, making you sleep worse, I'd say just don't do it and consume that protein at some other point in the day. All right, moving on. Hi, Greg. Hi, Lindsay. My name is Tom. My question on pre-sleep nutrition is in regards to protein intake. I seem to remember some years ago that there was a lot of talk that, you know, during the day, uh, whey protein was better to have at that point. And during the nighttime, you know, before you go to bed, whatnot, casein was the way to go. And I think it was because it tends to be a slower digestion. So you're sleeping and blah, blah, blah. I also seem to remember that it was debunked because it doesn't even really make a whole lot of sense to begin with. But... Maybe I'm wrong. Could you said any light? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I can shed some light on that. And uh, in fact, I did in a research spotlight uh, back in May, which we can link in the show notes. So it was uh, discussing. Uh, so ju- just as just as some background, I guess, um, the kind of like thought or assumption underpinning that question is that uh you know, you're asleep all night, that's eight hours. So you might want to have elevated amino acids in your blood for a total longer period of time than, than you might otherwise want to, just because you're you're not going to be eating anything yeah. for the next eight to 10 hours. Right. So uh, different proteins digest and their amino acids are absorbed at different rates, different speeds. And uh, the protein used most often in research is whey protein, which is a very fast digesting protein. And in the in the wild and wacky world of proteins, casein is also a pretty fast digesting protein, but it's a slower digesting protein than whey. So uh, oftentimes you you will see people saying like, hey, before sleep, casein is the one to go with mm-hmm. because it's a slower digesting protein. It's going to keep amino acid levels elevated for a larger chunk of the night than whey would. It, it's good. That's what you should go with. Um, and, and most of the research looking at uh, overnight muscle protein synthesis or some of the longitudinal research looking at pre-sleep protein intake has used casein as, as the protein being investigated. Um, but Recently, there was a study that directly compared whey to casein um, for overnight muscle protein synthesis. And uh, like long story short, they had very similar effects. Um, essentially, the the initial spike in muscle protein synthesis was a little bit higher with whey. Mm-hmm. And the uh, uh, curve itself stayed elevated above baseline for a little bit longer with casein. And over the course of the entire night basically identical yeah so um yeah so that's that's where that idea came from um and that that is essentially the debunking uh yeah it it the total amount of protein and its ability to stimulate muscle protein synthesis seems to be the primary factor 
And with a faster digesting protein, it's just going to stimulate pro a little more protein synthesis early on and a little bit less later in the night. With a slower digesting protein, it's going to stimulate a little bit less muscle protein synthesis early on, a little bit more later in the night. And by the time you wake up, the same thing has occurred. Yeah. Um, but like I mentioned also in my in my answer to yeah, Justin's question. Yeah, I like how question, these have built upon each other. Yeah, I maybe I did that on purpose. <laughs> nice. I, I actually didn't. Uh, if if I were more organized, this is the order I would have chosen, <laughs> though. So I'm I'm thankful for that little bit of serendipity. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm also not even sold that it matters all that much in the first place. Uh, to have protein at all at that time. Right. Yeah. And, and so let me just say a little bit more about that because, you know, it's, it's easy to express skepticism and just leave that hanging in the air. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of ideas about the importance of like protein timing that are based on like acute muscle protein synthesis research. So, you know, the, the idea that you need to eat protein five or six times a day or whatever, uh, and, and you need to consume protein right before you go to bed. A lot of that is based on findings related to um, like the total protein intake per, the, the, the dose response relationship between protein intake in a single sitting and muscle protein synthesis stimulation in that sitting mm -hmm. um, where, you know, after about 40 grams or so in a single sitting, a, including after a workout, it doesn't really seem like more stimulates further muscle protein synthesis. And outside of a training context, it seems like, like 20, 25 grams is probably enough. Um, so then that makes people say like, well, okay, there, there's really no point in ever consuming more than 40 grams of protein in a meal. Um, and then there's, there's other research, uh, showing or, or suggesting that after you consume, uh, some protein, that there's a bit of a refractory period where consuming more protein won't stimulate further increases in muscle protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. There's like a three, four hour cool off time essentially before more protein consumption can trigger another spike in muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, I've definitely heard that before. Yeah, and so then that leads to the idea of like, hey, you're you're trying to get in, um, you know, you're if you're trying to get in 200 grams of protein per day or something, well, you shouldn't go over more than 40 grams per meal because mm -hmm. you you would just be wasting the additional protein you consumed in that meal, and they need to be spaced out by at least like four hours between meals. And also, like, you definitely don't want to be catabolic for any period of time ever. So, like, you lose all your gains that way. Yeah. So, you want to put one of those protein feedings right before bed. Yeah. And so that it, it creates this. You're really creating a tight schedule for yourself every day. You are. Like, there, there's <laughs> there's a reason that there's a stereotype that bodybuilders just live out of Tupperware. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, all of that stuff makes all the sense in the world if you're looking at acute muscle protein synthesis research mm -hmm. where it breaks down is that there has been like research looking at time restricted feeding approaches versus people spacing their their protein intake more throughout the day right and if a lot of this was a major concern you would expect time restricted feeding to do terribly when it when it comes to like longitudinal body composition outcomes because like if you're trying to get in 
uh, all of that protein in like uh, an eight hour feeding window, or in some of these studies, even a four hour feeding window, um, you're either going to have to go like more than the like 25 to 40 grams of protein per meal, or you're going to have to have your meals much closer spaced than like three, four hours apart. Like the, the logistics just don't make sense yeah. for you to be able to design a protein intake regime that will like check all of these boxes that you think you need to check based on muscle protein synthesis studies. But then what we see is like in terms of actual muscle growth and body composition results over eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever, they do just fine. Like they, they produce the same results as any other feeding pattern. Um, and so th this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. Like I think people do have a tendency to like over extrapolate um, like muscle protein synthesis research mm -hmm. or I mean, it is also possible that that all of that stuff is actually true and relevant and does apply longitudinally, but it's just simply the fact that in terms of stimuli for muscle growth, you, the resistance training you do is so much more important than your diet. Not that your diet is irrelevant or unimportant, but like the training stimulus itself is such a larger driver mm -hmm. that even if like optimizing these little things about your diet maybe maybe could theoretically have an effect that if we had studies with 10 times as many subjects and ran for 10 times as long they would detect that significant effect um but yeah in in smaller samples over like relevant time periods we we just don't see that which suggests that either there there's some sort of breakdown in that logical chain where, where you can't necessarily assume that you can extrapolate out acute muscle protein synthesis results one-to-one -to, -one to long-term hypertrophy results uh, or it suggests that if that chain of logic does apply um, it's it's still the magnitude of the impact is just so small because it is so much less important than the resistance training stimulus itself um so yeah, that, that's where that's where a lot of the ideas related to like needing to consume protein before sleep come from. It's like th this is one more feeding window where you can work in another twenty-five to forty gram dose and not have that catabolic period overnight. But yeah, I'm 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 j largely based on like the time restricted feeding research. I I am just very skeptical that that actually makes much of any difference in the first place. All right, uh, last question. Hey y'all, this is Wael from New Jersey. Uh, I'm curious about the relative value of different macronutrients before sleep. Uh, I'm in an overall caloric surplus and following a weightlifting routine, so my main objective is building muscle. Uh, so I typically try to get some protein in before I go to bed in the form of a protein shake, but I'm curious about whether I should be getting more calories before sleep in general too. Uh, so put another way, does a gram of fat or carbohydrates have different benefits if I have it right before sleep compared to if I have it earlier in the day? Are there any pros or cons to shifting these calories to right before bed or is it pretty much a wash? Uh, thanks for answering. Love the pod. Uh, yeah, so short answer, probably not, at least as it relates to sleep um, in terms of like muscle protein synthesis and muscle growth and whatnot. Like, I, I think my answers to the prior two questions address that. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of just kind of other stuff. Um, so 
Danny Lennon wrote a great article about chrononutrition on Stronger by Science back in the day, which we can link in the show notes. Um, and it, it talks about more like the the metabolic effects of energy consumed at different times in the day. And so this this probably isn't something to like really pay that much mind to or like be that concerned about. But there are several lines of evidence suggesting that overall in the aggregate, it is probably a little bit better to consume a little bit more of your total energy earlier in the day versus late in the day. Um, so yeah, o- overall, when it comes to like optimizing pre-sleep nutrition, I'm of the opinion that there's really not much to optimize. Uh, like if, if you want to have a protein shake before bed, I'm not going to tell you not to. Like it, it might have a positive effect. I don't expect it to have a meaningful effect, but eh. You know, if it had, if it were to have an effect, I would expect it to be positive. Mm. Um, but I also probably wouldn't make a point of specifically shifting more calories late in the day to consume right before bed. Yeah. Um, the the chrononutrition literature um, suggests that like it's that's probably not going to have like a major deleterious effect con- compared to consuming stuff earlier in the day, but. Um, and, and like, if it just matches your preferences better and you find that consuming a big meal before bed helps you sleep better, like, that's cool. Like, I'm not going to tell you not to, but just in a vacuum on average, knowing nothing else about you, um, I would probably not suggest making a point of shifting more calories to consume right before bed. Like that, it, it probably, rather than having a neutral to positive impact on on health and outcomes like related to body composition or performance or anything, I would expect that to have a neutral to slight negative effect relative to consuming those calories at some other time in the day. All right. All right. That does it for this week's episode. It does. How, uh, how did you enjoy hosting this one? The first Lindsay episode. It was fine. <laughs> I think you did great for your your first episode you hosted. I'll tell Trying you Trying to rein in your chaos is quite a task. I'm exhausted. Um, I mean, you, you have more practice with it than most people. I do. I'll tell you this. You did way better than I did hosting my first fireside chat. Okay. I Thank think, you. I think you crushed it. Well, if the audience agrees and they liked this episode... They should like, rate, subscribe, share it with friends. And until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.